Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And this is a bittersweet day for me. Uh, a couple of my dearly loved staff members are rolling off of staff around the first of the year. Ben Mosbach, who was just up here, our deacon of administration, and Emily Arguello, our deaconess of kids ministry, have both decided, together with their spouses, that the Lord is leading them in new directions for their careers, and I couldn't be more proud of them and the decision that they're making for their families. One of our desires here at the church is to raise up men and women to lead in their homes and in the church in their respective biblical ways. Ben came on staff almost 10 years ago. Most of you probably have never experienced Sacred City Church pre-Ben Mossback, all right? It was a different place. Uh, when Ben came to us, he was a single young man, straight out of college, um, I had the privilege of performing Ben and Mackenzie's wedding. They've had three kids since then, and Ben has grown into one of the best pastoral assistants in the country. I had other pastors and leaders from around the country telling me, Ben is one of the best. And I told them, I'm a purple belt in jujitsu, and I can choke you out if you offer him a job. Uh, <laughs> then Ben grew up into a deacon of administration role, and he has done a superb job in that role for the past several years. Uh, ben is basically our Swiss army knife uh, on, on staff. So if you don't know, ask Ben. Ben knows. Everyone on our staff knows. Where's the, ask Ben. Whatever it is, ask Ben. He's, he's got the answer for that. And of course, Ben also has learned to do what he didn't think he could do. And that was stand up here in front of you every week and give the announcements. This is the first thing people ask when they hear that Ben is changing careers. <gasps> Who's going to do the announcements? I mean, it does all, that's really all Ben does all week. 40 hours of preparing for this up here. <laughs> this is how he's so good at it. <laughs> no. So today is a sad day for me because I feel like I'm losing um, my longest running staff member and friend here at the church. He has faithfully supported me and served God's mission uh, here for nine and a half years. And Ben, I just want to say publicly that I love you and how grateful to God I am for you. And I want you to come up here so the people uh, can look at you and you can feel even more awkward. Uh, but it's also, this is also a sweet day for me because this is what I want young men to do and to be. To love God, to marry a godly woman, to make a bunch of babies, to serve our church, 
and provide for their family the best that they are able. At this time, Ben feels called by God to take a new role with another young entrepreneur in our church and expand his skill set and ability to provide for his family. And so I'm proud of Ben and the decision that he's made. And Emily, if you'd come up here as well. Uh, Same goes for Emily. Emily has served our church faithfully in one of the most difficult roles, probably the most difficult role, let's just say it, probably the most difficult role, uh, for four and a half years. And she feels called to spend more time at home with her six children and supporting her husband, Alex. Lord knows he needs all the support he can get. (laughs) Take that. And I'm proud of her for making this decision together with Alex. They've been praying about it for a long time and they feel like it's the right time for them. And we all shed some tears together in our staff meeting this week because Emily and Ben have both been such faithful servants of Christ Church and dear friends to me. And I feel as, uh, got to get through this here. Uh, As Paul said to the saints in Philippi, quote, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says this, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so these two have been, uh, they're in my heart. They've been faithful to me. They've been faithful to our church. They've been a huge blessing to us. And our whole church is better because of their, their leadership and their gift and the way they've served our church. And now they've, they're rolling off staff in the new year. And just to be clear, they are not leaving the church. Uh, they are both still leaders in the church. They're just no longer going to be on staff at the church come the first of the year. So let's pray for them and thank them for their years of faithful service. And please pray for me and pray for the rest of the staff as we figure out how we're going to move forward in the new year. And just let you know, right? If communication breaks down, if things get a little disorganized, it's their fault. (laughs) Give me six months grace at least. Give me six months of grace, all right, till we figure this stuff out, right? So we love you guys. We're thankful for you. Do we have gifts? Did we get, yeah, Rob, Rob, don't be stingy. Let's go. <clears throat> so we got gifts for him, and let me, let me pray for him. So Father, I thank you for my brother. I thank you for my sister. I thank you for the grace that they have been to me and the grace that they have been to this church. I thank you for the years of faithful service, all the sweat, blood, and tears that were poured in to, to the leading people, to loving people, to sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, and praying that your kingdom would come on this earth as it is in heaven. So I just uh, pray a blessing to them in this, the new uh, endeavor for each of them career-wise. And I pray that you would uh, bless them, help them be fruitful where they are. And uh, I just love them so much. And thank you. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Love you guys. <clears throat> Whew. Okay. Let me pray for us again so I can transition my mind and heart to preach the word of God. Gracious Father, uh, we want to humbly come into your presence this morning underneath your word, and we want 
our heart, mind, and soul to respond the way that you want us to respond. You know what you want from each one of us. You know uh, where, we, where we sit right now. You know what's going on in each of our lives. So I pray, God of all grace, that you would speak to your people. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 that the Father has chosen some sheep, and those sheep hear his voice. And a voice of another they will not follow. And so, Father, I pray that your sheep would hear your voice through me this morning, and a voice of another that they would not follow. I pray that you would think through my mind, you would speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. I pray you would feed your people this morning from your word, and that we would uh, glorify you, and we would enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 9 through 12. Um, only four short verses, but that means nothing when it comes to how long the sermon's going to be. Uh, as I said in my pastoral welcome this morning, Advent is a special time of year where Christians are meant to unflinchingly look into the darkness of this world. Hear that? Unflinchingly look into the darkness of this world. That we are not trying to distract ourselves with Christmas sentimentality and just act like everything is okay. Brothers and sisters this morning, everything is not okay. There is still a war going on in Ukraine. China has become the most demonic, totalitarian government the world has ever known, controlling with their surveillance state nearly every aspect of their citizens' lives. It is a truly tyrannical rule. In our own country, our young people are more depressed, confused, and suicidal than ever before. In 2020, Suicide was the second leading cause of death among individuals between ages 10 and 14 and 25 to 34, and the third leading cause of death among individuals ages 15 to 24, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. I have found that I personally have become almost numb to the mass shootings that are being committed by young single men in our country nearly every single month. We are not okay. Some might say, and some do say, how can you believe in a God when things are so bad? Well, that's an okay question to ask. It's been asked millions of times over. It's asked in the scriptures itself. The Psalms answer this question over and over and over. It's a normal question to ask in moments like these. But I think the deeper problem or the deeper question is even more terrifying than that. Here it is. If there is no God, then there is no such thing as evil. Evil is a privation of that which is good. Now, what does privation mean? Privation means, quote, the loss or absence of a quality or attribute that is normally present. So here it is. God is good. And evil is a turning away from him. Think of it like this. Evil is like darkness. Darkness doesn't have its own substance. Darkness is merely the absence of light. Right? 
So, God is good. God is the source of all goodness. God is the definition of all goodness. And any turning away from him is a privation of the good and it becomes evil. So if there is no God, there is no evil. So without without an understanding of God, we cannot even say that anything is evil. I say this is evil, you say that is evil, and that's my opinion and that's your opinion, and this is called subjectivism, and evil is just subject to a person's understanding or perception. We are not subjectivists. We ask the the subjectivists, by what standard do you define what is evil and what is not evil? See, the scriptures tell us that when mankind turns away from God, the greatest good, they become evil and do evil deeds. So the evil of this world should not cause us to doubt God. Without God, there is no evil. We can't even say something's evil without God. No, and here is the question of Advent. The evil of this world should cause us to doubt the goodness of man. How can you believe in mankind, Elon Musk, when things are so bad? How can you believe in the goodness of man, Jeff Bezos, when things are so bad? See, with all of our education and all of our scientific advancement and all of our technology, we aren't getting better. We aren't getting happier. We aren't getting more moral. We aren't getting more righteous. We aren't loving one another like God tells us to. And this is why we need Advent. See, the first Advent... You read the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we see three chapters in that evil shows up. And evil is a turning away from that which is good. An angel that was created beautiful, turned away from God, rebelled from God, entered into his creation, tempted mankind. Mankind knew what was right, did the opposite thing. They fell into sin and murder and death and decay happened then because of the fall. And then we see mankind uh, do their best for let's just say 4,000 years of human existence, at least 4,000 years, maybe more of human existence. And guess what we learn over and over through the Old Testament? That guy's not gonna save us. That guy's not gonna save us. Oh, maybe it's Noah. Noah, oh, right after they get out of the boat, he gets drunk and naked. Bad, nope, nope. Noah's not the guy. Noah's not the one that's gonna heal us. Maybe it's David. Nope, it's not David. Here comes Bathsheba, right? Maybe it's this person. Nope, not them. So we get to the end of the Old Testament and we have basically nothing but a little bit of hope and a whole lot of failure from the line of men. The line of men has failed. Then, just to put an exclamation point on it, between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, God doesn't speak to his people for 400 years. Darkness, silence for 400 years. And then the promise of a Messiah is there and the rumor of a Messiah is coming and he could be here any day. And what does Herod do? Herod decides, oh, I hear there's a Messiah. I hear there's a hope for a king. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to kill every single male child that's been born that's under two years age. And so what's his answer? Infanticide. Now, can you... 
Can you feel the darkness? Can you feel the weight? And there's wailing and there's murder and there's infanticide all the way through the culture as people are going house to house looking for babies to slaughter because they want to kill Jesus. And it's in this moment that Jesus Christ comes busting forth onto the scene. It's in that dark moment. See, this is why we need Advent. We need to look the darkness square in the face. And here in the midst of the darkness, the angels say, quote, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When you're in that dark spot, what do you want? Good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here is what Advent is meant to teach us. The line of men has failed, so God's going to do something about it. Our hope is not in man. Our hope is in the Christ. Our hope is in the Messiah, the God-man. That's what Advent is all about. We look into the darkness because it's in that darkness where the light of Jesus Christ comes to shine the brightest. It's in the sadness and fear and hopelessness that the coming of Jesus Christ is good news of great joy for all who will listen. So here's the strange juxtaposition. We look into the dark to see the light bursting forth. This is why we do fireworks at night and not in the morning, right? I'm sure they, would, they, they can't compete with the sun, right? So we do them at night and they look dazzling, they look miraculous, at night, we need that black backdrop to see the beauty of the gospel. We look into the sadness and grief to experience, listen, a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Today in our text, we read that, quote, the joy of the Lord is your strength. One of the strangest realities is that this joy that comes from God comes in the darkness through tears. Let me explain. The more you read your Bible, and that's a good thing, the more you're going to realize your own sinfulness. And that's kind of a good thing, but it feels like a bad thing, does it not? See, there's basically two types of scriptures in the Bible. Scholars have called them law and gospel. When you read the Bible, you notice, here's the law. There's a lot of commands there, right? Do this and don't do that. These are all imperatives. This is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. Now, the law shows us God's holy nature and what he expects from us. This is how we're supposed to live. These are our duties as human beings made in the image of God and living in God's good world. But the more we read the law and the more we come to understand the law, the more we are going to realize how guilty we are for breaking it. Romans 7.7 7 in the New Testament says it like this, quote, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, so here's an issue. We read the law and we feel bad, Right? Do not lust, do not covet, do not envy, do not lie, do not break the Sabbath. Give generously of your finances to God's church. Serve the poor. Share the gospel with those who don't know it. 
memorize scripture. I could go on and on and on. And what happens? We feel bad, don't we? We should. Now listen, here's what we're going to see. That's exactly how the people in Nehemiah's day felt. Now, do you remember what happened last week? Last week, they got the city walls all finished, right? They gathered together as one man. And what did they say? They said, bring out Ezra, the preacher, and tell Ezra he better bring the book with them. And Ezra, when you come, bring the book and read from the book. And the book, of course, was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And open it up and read it. And Ezra does this. He opens the book. He reads a glorious six-hour sermon. We all got to have aspirations, y'all. All right? We all got to have aspirations. I'm looking forward to the day. Six hours, all right? He preaches for six hours. And now what we're going to see is then the people's response. They were listening intentively. But they were also cut to the heart. And they began repenting and confessing their sins. And they were weeping, right? They were crying. Now, you know, to preach the gospel, if you guys start weeping and moaning and beating your chest, that's probably not quite the, you know, ideal response that I'm looking for. I'm kind of looking for that, but I, I'm, I'm shooting for something a little, little more than that, right? Think of it like this. Think of every sin you have ever committed as a brick, a brick. Every lie, every lustful thought, every hurtful word, every envious feeling, every ungrateful attitude, each one of them is a brick. And when you die, one day you will stand before God and all of those bricks will be collected together in a net and hoisted together above your head by a rope, and you will stand under them, and you will face to face stand before the holy God, and maybe he will replay the video of you, because you'll be like, I didn't do that. He'll, be, he'll replay the video of you that shows exactly when you did all of the sins that you've committed, and then he will, he will read the guilty verdict over your head, and he will have the angel, say the angel Gabriel, cut the rope, and those sins will come crashing down on your head, and you will personally pay for every single one of those laws that you broke. Isn't that a terrifying thought? Well, that's what the Bible teaches. See, God is the one keeping a list <laughs> and checking it twice. See, when we think about this, it should grieve us. It should cut us to the heart like it did the people in Jerusalem. And we should weep our eyes out like they did. When we look up and see that net and we know, I did all those things. I've rebelled against a holy God and that's what I deserve. So why here in our text, look what our text says. Verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So the people are weeping and they're saying, I'm guilty and I, I need to repent and I've broken it. They're looking up at their sins and they're going, no, God, no, please. And they're weeping. And then all of a sudden, Ezra's like, stop crying. Don't weep. Don't mourn. Some of you are like, 
what? Why, why, isn't that good? Doesn't God want <laughs> weepy Christians? Like Eeyore walking around, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm a Christian. Oh, looks enjoyable for no one, right? Does God, no, that's not what God wants. But here's what we're going to see. <clears throat> These people have been grieved. They're mourning, but they've been grieved unto repentance. And now it's time to rejoice. See, every time I preach the gospel and I preach on Sunday morning, I need this moment. You, if you don't like to feel bad, then you should never go to church. Because when you come into the presence of a holy God, you're coming in as a sinner. <laughs> and no one swaggers into his presence. If you come in and you've been fornicating and you've been breaking commandments and you're not obeying God and you're not living your life the way that God wants you to, when you come into his presence, you should feel convicted, maybe even condemned, maybe a little afraid, maybe a little scary. You should feel that. But the point is not for you to come in, feel that way, and then walk out sad. No, the point is for you to come in, feel that way, hear the bad news of the law, the bad news of I'm guilty in sin, and then in the same sermon, hear the good news that produces great joy in you. And that's what's going to happen here. When we read the law, we should be grieved, and that grief should produce in us a deep sense of need for the grace of God. We should say, God, I am guilty. I am at your mercy. I deserve nothing but your wrath and judgment. But this is where the good news comes in and changes everything. The other type of scriptures in the Bible, so we have law, we also have gospel. These are the scriptures that are not telling us what to do. They're not saying what we need to do or what not to do. They're telling us what God has done for us. The, if these are the imperatives, this is what you have to do. Here's the indicatives. This is what God has done. The law tells us what we are to do, and the gospel tells us what God has done or will do for us if we trust in him. And here is the key to receiving from God a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. A joy that cannot be put out by the circumstances of life. The joy of the Lord comes to us only after the law has cut us down. The joy of the Lord comes to us only after the law of God has cut us down. So, think about this. The Israelites here have done all the right things. They called for the preacher they tell him to open the book and read from the book and Ezra preaches his guts out and the Levites break off into groups and they explain the meaning of the laws to them and the people are brought to deep contrition and repentance and they begin to weep in despair. We have sinned against the one and only and awesome great God. We have sinned against Yahweh. What are we going to do now? They're looking at the net of their sins. What hope do we have and what does Ezra say for them to do? Look at verse 10. Ezra says to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What is Ezra saying? Ezra saying, you heard the law and you were grieved, but now that you've repented, hey, Turn that frown upside down. 
God doesn't want mopey Christians. God doesn't want grieved and sad and, and despairing and depressed Christians. No, he's saying, you, yes, you've confessed your sins and you've repented and you've seen that, that, that weight was about to fall on your head, but now I want you to rejoice. I want you to be happy. I want you to enjoy God. I want you to eat the best parts of the meat. That's the fatty meat. Somebody say amen. Okay, there we go, there we go. I want you to drink the sweetest wine. I want you to go drink your best wine. I want you to rejoice in the Lord and I want you to share it with other people. This day is meant to be a day of rejoicing, not a day of mourning or sadness. The time of grieving is over for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I want you to return to our metaphor for a minute. These people heard the law. They saw their many sins like bricks lifted up over their head. They were cut down by the law. But then Ezra basically says, now's not the time for grieving. Rejoice. Why? Let me ask you this. How? If you are standing face to face with the holy God and you're looking up there and you're seeing all your sins that you know you're guilty of, they just read... Who knows how far they made it in the Pentateuch. But if you get through Deuteronomy, you're, there's a lot of stuff you know. I broke a lot of commandments, right? How can I just, you want me to throw a party when there, all these bricks are above my head? Like a holy God is going to judge me. How in the world can I just eat good food, drink good wine and be happy? Well, we know this. Here's the gospel in the Old Testament. When God gave his people the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 34, listen to, what, listen to how God described himself at, while he's giving the Ten Commandments. Quote, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, a God, look, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and a Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Here's what God is saying. It's a beautiful picture right here. He's saying, yes, I am holy. Yes, I am a righteous judge. No one's going to get anything by me, but I am also simultaneously merciful. I am gracious. I am abounding in steadfast love. And though I know you don't understand how a sinner can become into the presence of a holy God and worship me and be happy and rejoice and have their sins forgiven, what I need you to do in this moment is trust me. Trust me. Trust that I can figure out a way to make you righteous. I can figure out a way to forgive your sins. I can figure out a way to do something with those sins that are hanging above your head. But right now, at this point in the story, all that they can do is throw themselves on the mercy and grace of God. They don't know how he's gonna work this out. What we see here is both an amazing picture of the grace of God and the faith of the people of God. Look, think about that. They feel guilty. They're concerned about judgment. They're staring at that ton of bricks su suspended over their head. And God says to them, I know you're worried. I know you're afraid. I know you have that sense of dread that that's gonna crush you at any moment. But trust me, I will take care of you. And he says this, now go show your faith by throwing a sweet party and enjoying some of the good gifts I've given you. 
This is good news, Christians. God does not want us weeping and mourning and sad forever. We weep into repentance and then we rejoice in the Lord who's full of glory. Now, have you ever watched a movie or read a book that had a twist in it that wasn't revealed until the end of the story? Those are often the best stories. See, the power in those stories comes through the tension, the buildup. You're building this plot, you're building this tension, and you're getting towards the end. How is it going to be made right? How is it going to be fixed? And then you got the climax or the turn, and at the very end, when it turns and it, and it oh, and you see what happens, you laugh, right? If you're reading the book, you put it down, you go, whoa. If you're watching the movie, you laugh and you look around and go, I had no idea that's what, that was going to happen. Whoa. See, it's a powerful way of telling a story. Well, listen, the Bible is like that. You've got thousands of years of tension. You've got Bible story after Bible story after Bible story. What's going to make the world right? What's going to bring healing? What's going to deal with this huge basket full of sins that's hanging over our head? What's going to deal with this problem with a holy God and sinful? How's this going to be made right? We don't really know how God is going to justify a guilty sinner without being unjust himself until you get to almost the very end of this book. God does it at the climax. He does it at the turn. And at what is the turn? Here's the, two, here's the two things that you learn from the Bible if you're reading it over and over and over. You, you, number one, you come away going, mankind is jacked up. Like, that's the first thing you learn. They did what? He did what? What? The Bible is, is unashamedly, it looks straight at our darkness, human depravity. In the Bible, you have the deepest, darkest sins of mankind. You have killing brothers, you know, murder of brothers. You have rape. You have incest. You have polygamy. You have all kinds of ungodly behavior that ruins people's souls and society at large. And when you read the Bible, you should go, whoa, mankind is jacked up. And we should come away saying, I don't know. I don't have any hope in, in the, or confidence in our future. Given the, given the chance, I think we would annihilate civilization if we could. But then the turn comes. What's going to save us? It's not what. It's who. God himself enters the story. God himself becomes man. Jesus, as the God-man, puts on flesh, dwells among us, adds to his divinity, humanity, obeys where we sin. He pleases God perfectly and he does so as our representative in our place, pleasing God for us. Then, and here's the metaphor again, just when the ton of bricks that hangs precariously above us, that great net of all of our sins, just as that net is cut, we see the judgment of God falling upon us. What are we going to do? Jesus comes in and pushes us aside and Jesus takes the full weight of the wrath of God in our place for us. He takes our place on the cross. He pays our debt. 
We're pushed off to the side, and now we look at the metaphor again. Here's where the joy comes in. Jesus does this very specifically. This is what the book of Isaiah says, Isaiah 61, verse 3. Jesus does this to grant to those who mourn in Zion, we could call that the church now, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. When they would grieve and they would repent, they would throw ashes on their head to show to the world their contrition, that they were broken. He's saying, no, 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 the time of mourning is over. God is now gonna give you a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Look, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. We don't walk around mourning any longer. We have the oil of gladness now. Look, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. This is so interesting. Your strength is tied to your joy in Christ. Your strength is tied to your joy in the Lord. The less happy you are in God, the more weak you're going to be. The more, uh, the easier you're going to be to be tempted, right? The more joy I have in Christ, the stronger I am against temptation, against the wiles of the devil, and against my own flesh. Look, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It's the same thing. When you're sad and mopey and and grief-stricken, you're weak. You're you're easier, easier to be tempted. But when you're joyful in the Lord, when you have gladness instead of mourning, right? You're going to be stronger in the Lord. There's, we, our joy and our strength is inextricably connected together. See, here's the idea. When you stare at that great net of sin, it should rightly terrify you and grieve you into repentance But then, when you see those bricks fall on Jesus in your place, you realize, and this is one of the best news of the gospel, hear me, if you're in Christ, you learn, guess what? When it falls on Christ, now there's nothing hanging over your head any longer. There is no more judgment. It's all fell on Christ. There's not one or two more bricks or maybe after I came to Christ and I've sinned more and those bricks are up there. No, no, no. Christ died for your past, present, and future sins. There's no more bricks above your head. No judgment's gonna fall on you. It's all fell on Christ already. He has paid it all and all to him we owe. And let's just keep on going with this for a moment because the metaphor isn't over. If you keep your eyes locked on this image now, The bricks have fallen on Jesus. We look at these and we think the story's over, but that's just, whew, there's another turn coming because those bricks now begin to shift and move. See, Jesus, as the God-man, as a sinless God-man, had the power of an indestructible life because he was God and he was sinless, therefore death could not hold him. Because he was man, he could die. Because he was God, he could get up. So Jesus rises victoriously from the dead and gives now the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to every single believer, to you. And what happens is when you receive the Holy Spirit, you are now counted as righteous in Christ and that righteousness can never be taken from you. So let me say it like this. Jesus paid your debt, but then... When he died for you, 
and he got up, he now gives you more than just paying your debt. He credits into your account. He gives you his own righteousness. So now you stand before God just the same way that Jesus stands before God. This is, say, a Luther called it the great exchange. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. So now when God looks at us, he looks at us through Christ. And it's as if we have never sinned and only obeyed perfectly all our life. This is why, like in our, our confession of sin, we, we said that we, we never have God's frown. God is always perpetually smiling on us because of Jesus. We have joy that, is, that cannot be taken away from us because it was earned for us by Jesus. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of joy and has been put inside of us. And this is good news, and it's a whole lot better than your shout, and I can tell you that for sure. Not only... Are our sins forgiven? But we've been credited with the righteousness of Christ. That means because of Jesus, God is eternally pleased with you. Eternally happy. He can sing over you as it says in Zephaniah. See? But it also means something else for us. If that is true, Christian... That means we can still look darkness in the face. We can still look our own brokenness in the face because we have nothing to hide. See, so many people in our culture today are so afraid of looking at their sins. They are so afraid of feeling bad or guilty. So they avoid at all costs. They literally have to set up their life in such a way that they avoid reality. Don't ever risk too much because you might fail and that might come back and the reason you failed is because you just weren't good enough. Don't ever post that unfiltered photo because people might know what you look like before 10 a.m. What do they do? So we distract ourselves. From the real world, we distract ourselves from the darkness within by self-medicating through busyness, shopping, work, mindless social media scrolling. And guess what? Because of this, we live very fragile lives. Why didn't I get very many likes on that post? How fragile. One person said one wrong word to you and your whole life is collapsing in on itself. Your boss came to you and confronted you and challenged you that you weren't living up to his expectations and you feel completely demoralized. You're fragile. The real world crushes and kills and destroys fragile people. The, the real world is anti-fragile. We look inside and we see remaining sin. Oh, and we think, I can't, I gotta ignore this because God won't love me if I do. Or God will be, wait, wait, he's already put it on Christ. It's already been paid for. What are you talking about? He's already pleased with you. Look at it, own it, confess it, repent of it, ask God for grace to grow out of it, put a smile on your face and eat some pork, man. First service didn't get that little nugget. 
See, we spend so, our culture spends so much of their time doing everything they can to avoid the reality that they are sinners under the righteous judgment of God. And even immature Christians can live like this. But you don't have to. If you want a joy that comes from God and not your circumstances, a joy that cannot be snuffed out by death, a joy that cannot be snuffed out by losing your job, by financial downturn, by sickness, by pain, by the sins of the world. If you want a joy that stays buoyant above anything else, that joy's got to be that's, that joy's got to come from the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And if you want the joy of the Lord that is your strength, here's the, back to the analogy. You need to watch the whole movie, beginning to end. You need to know the bad news that's in the beginning, a couple thousand years of that, and you need to know the good years, or the good news that comes at the end. See, we can look at our sins. Don't look it away. Don't look away at them. But see them kill the Son of God. And see him rise victoriously and shake them off like the God-man he is. See him give you the Holy Spirit so that you are sealed for the final day of redemption. The day when Christ will come again and judge the living and the dead. And know your judgment day has already happened. You are free. You are forgiven. You were dead in your sins, but now you've been made a new creation to live joyfully in God's strength the rest of your days. Here it is. A Christian is only as strong as he is able to rejoice in the joy of the Lord. A Christian is only as strong as he is able to rejoice in the joy of the Lord. You say, what is the joy of the Lord? It's joy that both comes from God and has God as its object. So it's joy that comes from God, but it's also joy that has God as its object. See, if you put your joy in anything else in the world, that thing is subject to death, decay, and destruction. But if you put your joy in God, he doesn't change. So your joy, you can have your joy whenever you need it. See, the believer who is in a spiritually healthy state rejoices mainly in God himself, or the gospel. He's happy because there is a God, and because God is happy in his person, and God is good in his character, and so that means all the attributes of God become wellsprings of joy to the thoughtful, contemplative believer. For such a man says with his soul, this is what what, uh, C.H. Spurgeon says, quote, all these attributes of God are mine. His power my protection. His wisdom, my guidance. His faithfulness, my foundation. His grace, my salvation. His joy, my strength. Now let's return to my movie reference. (laughs) Once you watch that movie, right, that had the twist at the end, you can never watch that movie the same way again, right? Next time through, oh yeah, oh, you're going to learn new things, right? That's the same with the Bible. 
Once you understand that the whole point of the Bible isn't just mankind save yourself, mankind be good enough to make God happy, but the whole point of the Bible is, man, there is no hope in yourself, so look to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Once you realize that Jesus is the point, Jesus is the interpretive key of the whole Bible, when you go back to Genesis and you read it through, you read it differently. You read it looking to Jesus. You read it looking for Jesus. You read it understanding this is all pointing to Jesus. It's interesting, when Jesus, so he lives the life, the perfect life, he dies a substitutionary death, he gets up three days later, he doesn't just float off to heaven. He spends 40 days walking this earth in his new body. And one of the things he does is there's some disciples walking on the way to Emmaus, and they're like, bro, this is my interpretation, Bro, what just happened? Do you even understand what just happened? We saw Jesus. He preached the gospel like nobody's ever preached it. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He ends up dying on a cross. Didn't see that coming. Then he, they say he's got up from the dead, but I haven't seen him. What is happening? And Jesus like slips into this conversation. And they don't even know it's Jesus. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, quote, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus said, let's go back to Moses. That was about me. Let's go back to the Exodus. That was about me. Let's go back to Leviticus. That was about me. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. That was about me. Let's go back to King David. That was actually about me. Let's go back to the prophet Nathan. That was actually about me. Let's go back to Nehemiah. That was actually about me. The whole interpretive key of the Bible is Jesus Christ himself. So now, with that understanding, let's go back and read our text this morning. Then he said to them, Go your way and eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Why could the people rejoice even though they were grieved over their sin? Because God was going to put their sin on Jesus Christ and forgive them totally and still remain righteous in himself while he did it. See, they had to look forward in hope and faith, right? I don't know how he's going to do it, but I trust him. They had to look forward in the future. We get to look back. God promised he would take care of it and he did it in a way that no one could have imagined. His own son became the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, we are not left to search for joy. It has been hand-delivered to us from heaven. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And let me add, and he will come again. Joy has come. Will you take it? God wants you to be joyful. So much so, he sent his own son to hand deliver indestructible joy for you. Will you receive it this morning? If you will, you can go home out of this gathering, 
the way these Israelites did. Look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to see everybody wondered why the Baptists always went to the buffet after church. <laughs> they had a verse for that. They all had a verse for that. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Because they had understood, look, they had understood the words that were declared, declared to them. If you understand the law rightly, you will be grieved into rejoicing. If you understand the words of the scripture rightly, you will shed tears that will lead to joy. You will mourn into gladness. Oh my goodness. You will be grieved into indestructible joy. Man. Somebody needs to fire up a Traeger. Let's go. This is one of the realities of Advent. It should make us some of the most serious people in all the world. We are serious as a heart attack. We are as serious as sin. We can take our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of our world seriously and we don't have to look past it. But we are also simultaneously the most joyful and joyous people in the world. We don't have blind hope in humanity's ability to transcend evil and make the world a utopia without God. Technology will not save us. No, our hope is in the God who rescues. Our hope is in the God who has come and who will come again. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He has sent his son to save us from our sins, and Jesus has already accomplished our salvation on his cross, and we wait for him now with serious joy, knowing that he will return again, and our joy will be complete and never-ending, eternal joy. So now, Christians, we take the bread and we take the wine, and we eat, and we drink joyfully knowing that our hope and our joy is in the Lord and not man. <clears throat> Listen, we're gonna do something a little different today. I had, uh, I wrote this sermon, and then one of our elders texted me, I texted all of our uh, elder candidates a video of, of a Christian college who's pretty pugnacious, like this Christian college, we got the same vibe, and uh, I, I watched the video, and I was like, oh my goodness, I have to show this, because this is like my sermon. So what we're going to do, Christians, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to watch a video real quick, and then we're going to get to worship God joyfully before we get out of here, all right? Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for the serious joy that you offer us in the gospel, that we don't have to look away from the brokenness of the world, but we have hope and joy through it. We thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for this tangible reality that we get to partake in one, with one another, that we are living in, in between times. We still wait for your coming. There's still brokenness and darkness in our world, but we know the light has come and the light will come again. And so we take this bread that is your body and we eat it in remembrance of your death. We take this blood, the cup of the new covenant, and we remember that you have made a covenant with us, that our sins have been on Christ. And therefore, judgment does not await us. There's nothing but love and grace and forgiveness and kindness and joy for the Christian believer. So I ask that you would seal this 
in us right now as we take this supper, Lord God, and produce in us a joy that's um, unexplainable for us, Lord God, and full of glory. Would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.